Now entering Nerdist.com. Enormous thanks to Jen Carroll and Gabe Rotter for making this interview happen. If you see them, thank them. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the host and creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel, which you are currently listening to. I'm also a TV writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and currently for uh, the DreamWorks Netflix program Puss in Boots. Check it out. It's now available. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio that is now a podcast right here on the Nerdist Network every week. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more details. If you enjoy the Nerdist Writers Panel, please leave a review on iTunes and let us know who you want to see on this program by following me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds, and by liking this show on Facebook, facebook.com slash Nerdist Writers Panel. Now, here's the theme song. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel and it's hosted by Ben Blacker where he gets a bunch of writers and he asks them lots of questions and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Yeah. Um, again, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Um, we'll kind of start out talking about how it is getting back into, this is kind of a deep process question right. to get right into, but how it is to get back into the heads of these characters that you haven't written in like right. 10 years, right? Eight years was the right. movie. Right, right, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been, I started working on the uh, the idea in 1992, so it's been a, a, a real long time for me, you know, uh, nearly uh, 24 years, uh, 23 years since the show first aired. Um, Anyway, getting back into their head, you know, uh, you have to get back into the heads of Mulder and Scully being true to the um, time frame, uh, so true to the passage of time. So that's the difference is that they live in a and do what they do in a different world, in a different context now. So you've got to get into that headspace, if you will. But uh, as far as getting into the characters' heads, uh, they, I mean, done a fair bit of work with them, and uh, we've written uh, those characters before. Uh, that's not to say we they don't look at things anew, and they don't look at things uh, from a wiser perspective, because they do, so we wanted to uh, accomplish those things. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting exercise in a lot of ways, yep. in that you're dealing with characters that you've lived with for 24 years. Right. In a new context, yeah. Uh, and how do they see this new world? What kind of conversations? I mean, first of all, that you had to have with yourself, but then yeah. with your collaborators once you brought the writers. Right. Well, we talked about you know what's going on in America, and we mm-hmm. talked about when the show ended. Uh, it was a much different world than the world we are living in now. Yeah. We talked about that uh, technologically. It's much different. Uh, governmentally, it's much different. Uh, Politically, it's much different. Uh, so all those things uh, factor into our the stories we've put together, how they impact the so-called mythology, mm-hmm. uh, but also how they impact uh, the X-Files um, generally, uh, the kinds of stories that we want to tell. Uh, there are certain, uh, I would call them sort of command performance uh, aspects, uh, things you want to still scare people, you want to mm-hmm. still... Uh, um, you know, be true to the genre and to to the uh, thriller, horror, um, uh, political thriller uh, uh, genre that we work within. Yeah, there's something interesting about making an X Files today 
in a post X Files world. Yes, you know these yeah. are. This was a show that created a lot of those templates. Right, created a template for having horror and political thriller and even you know a procedural element yes. all in one show. Yeah. So how do you how do you approach that? How do you keep it something that you're interested in, and how do you keep it something for interesting for an audience that has now seen this for 20 years? Well, I, 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 we revisited the mythology, so we wanted mm-hmm. to uh, look at that anew. We didn't want to just uh, rest on laurels and uh, certainly just start where we left off. Uh, we had much to uh, think about and to accomplish, so I would say we've recast the mythology in an interesting way. Uh, but, you know, when, when you say this, this is a post-X-Files world, uh, it's a post, I guess, call it first-generation X-Files world, mm-hmm. but really we're coming back into a very x filian uh, a word that uh, <laughs> I guess you could use, uh, world uh, where uh, the government is not necessarily to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. There's a whole new post, you know, in the past 10 years, there's a whole, whole new world of <laughs> political thriller to engage yes, with. Yes, yes, um, What are the particular fun... What, what, are, what are the fun aspects of it for you to come back this time around? Uh, getting back to work with David and Jillian is, uh, right. is a treat. Uh, going back to Vancouver is a huge treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, lo- I love uh, working up there. I, I just... Uh, I, with old friends uh, in a place that I believe is one of the best places to tell X-Files stories. Not mm-hmm. the only place, but... Uh, certainly one of the best places. Why is that? I'm, and I apologize, I'm going to yeah. interrupt you a yeah. whole bunch of times just right. to dig deeper on some of this stuff. Uh, Vancouver doubles as so many places in America, uh, and even though the FBI's uh, now um, mission goes beyond those borders, uh, a lot of the stories are uh, any place in America stories. So uh, Vancouver works wonderfully for that. Vancouver provides you... Uh, what I call free atmosphere uh, <laughs> most of the year. Uh, we happen to be shooting up there right now, and you know uh, we had the, uh, the the summer solstice up there the other day. So that, that means we have uh, you know I, I guess about eighteen hours of sunshine up there right now. So we're work. It, it works against the telling of X Files, which <laughs> tend to want darkness and would tend to want mood and. Um, uh, the uh, atmosphere that some Vancouver sometimes can provide. Uh, so uh, while I've gone up there for the, uh, as I call it, free atmosphere, uh, I'm getting uh, a dose of uh, uh, very much a, a sort of, uh, uh, of sunshine. Yeah. Uh, but we're working around that. Good. Uh, and are there challenges specific to bringing this show back that maybe you didn't have the first time around? Well, of course, you've got the uh, history of the show, so you've got a lot of sure. expectation. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, certainly a lot of eyeballs on you. You've got... Uh, there's, there's something that uh, I wasn't quite expecting uh, because I haven't done a television series for quite a long time is the uh, social media aspect. <laughs> uh, you wear a brand new hat now as a, um, a showrunner. Yeah. Um, which is uh, you wear a marketing hat uh, from the get-go. Um, you're involved. I went to a meeting at Fox uh, before we set out, and there were 50 people in a marketing meeting uh, from branches of the network and uh, studio I had no idea existed, <laughs> you know, something called special ops. Uh, uh, so 
so for there's marketing. You, well, I, you know, it, it, this is all social media driven, sure. and uh, so you've got to make sure you you're, you have to be mindful of these outlets, and you have to be mindful that when the paparazzi show up on the street, that those images uh, go around the world instantaneously. And uh, so that's all brand new to us. Uh, it wasn't the way it was in 1993. Absolutely. How strange. The, the question of expectations is an interesting one. Um, how do you grapple with it when you're putting the writers together or even when you're just sitting down to you know, start talking about this? Right. Or do you? I mean, is it ultimately do you have to just go and do the work? Yeah, ultimately you do, and you ultimately you try to make the best choices, and you try to tell the best stories, and you try to, uh, you know, uh, take advantage. We have six hours to tell what, you know, really a season's worth of uh, X-Files here. Uh, there are, while this is a, uh, a mini-arc, uh, it, uh, it is an arc nonetheless, and so we've got to be um, uh, very conscious of uh, the, the t uh, compressed time frame and in doing a lot in a little space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is, like you said, doing some of that command performance stuff. Yes. Giving people what they want but still telling the story right, that right. you intend to tell. Um, and I, I want to kind of pick that up later, but uh, you're also, as you say, you're back in production on a show for the first time in a long time. Yes. Living in the day-to-day -day production. How yep. has that been for you? Uh, you know, I, I'm I, today. I, uh, I I was in Vancouver yesterday. I came down here last night uh, to uh, look at a uh, a rough cut of something that I just directed. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, I met a whole new uh, post production staff, so I'm meeting a lot of new people. Uh, I've got episode four that I've got uh, to write. I'm casting episode. Uh, parts for episode four while I'm down here. I've got to go back up and shoot a second unit day on uh, Monday. So uh, I'm very much reminded of uh, the demands of a, uh, a series schedule. You do many things at once. You, uh, you're forced to multitask yeah. because once the gun goes off, uh, there's you, there's no stopping. You know, it's a it is a forward moving creature, and you must uh, try to do the best work possible, uh, given the demands of time and money. Yeah, was it? Uh, again, it's been 20 years since you worked regularly on a, a first season. Is it? Is there some? It, it, first of all, do you look back and say, "How the hell did we do twenty-four of those a year?" Well, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> when I think that we did forty-nine episodes of the X Files in the first two seasons, uh, it, it is kind of unbelievable <laughs> to me. I had dinner with uh, Bob Goodwin, who mm -hmm. was the uh, uh, producer in, in Vancouver, uh, then the co-executive producer, became the executive producer, producing the show up there, and uh, we reminisced about how hard it was to do what we do, you know, doing a television series is one thing, but we actually were, we were shooting for the moon and we tried so many uh, things in physical production uh, that we were, um, you know, it was, it was foolhardy in a way. And I, and I, I say this, uh, this is one of the best uh, things I can say about uh, the times and, and probably one of the uh, funny uh, funniest, uh, not necessarily in the comedic sense, but <laughs> we, we really didn't know what we couldn't do. Uh, so we tried everything. And uh, I have to say, you know, Bob Goodwin, we 
uh, deliver him these scripts. And uh, I, I'm sure he looked at them and, and shook his head every time, uh, wondering how we could accomplish, you know, uh, train wrecks and uh, we could, you know, the uh, conning towers coming out of the polar ice cap, things that were uh, just not, uh, I guess, uh, you know, on a uh, then a series budget, which was modest, and a, um, a schedule which was uh, average, eight-day schedule, uh, weren't uh, not only achieved, but weren't even uh, uh, attempted. Uh, so uh, we tried a lot uh, with a little, and uh, we, we succeeded. And I think that's how our budgets and our schedule grew as time went forward. So uh, we kind of proved that we were worth the uh, maybe the extra time and money that came our way. Yeah, was that sort of ambition, as, as I think you imply, sort of out of naivety? Yes, it was, it was naivety. It was it, we were really uh, we were we were greenhorns, and uh, uh, we, we were reminded of that all the time because we were challenged at every step. But yeah. uh, there were people uh, up to the challenge, and uh, I always say that in the beginning they really dare you to succeed because they're so certain that you're going to fail, mm-hmm. and every uh, decision is made thinking about how to lose as little money as possible rather than how to make as much money as possible. Uh, of course, our, our um, mandate, uh, certainly with the creative staff, was to make it as good as possible. Uh, and uh, sometimes those things are in uh, direct conflict mm-hmm. with the uh, with your patrons. It's an intensely collaborative medium. Yes. Uh, and when you are faced with people saying, cut this or don't do this, and their reasons are often valid, you know, how, how do you maintain the vision for your project? Uh, that's, the, that's the trick. Uh, yeah. You know, if you, if you have a strong vision and you're able to communicate that vision and uh, uh, you have people who are willing to hear you out and not just uh, stand on ceremony, uh, you, you have a, a, a good working relationship. Uh, I, I met a man from, uh, uh, who worked at Tesla uh, recently. And I asked him how that was, and he says, it's really hard. He says, you know, I'm an engineer, and every time I bring my work to them, you know, in advance, uh, I get, you know, just grilled and just raped, and uh, they, they, you know, they, uh, they force me to justify every decision. Every, everything that I do is, has to go through this, this process, and it's just excruciating. And I think, well, it's kind of how, you know, a television show goes. Absolutely. You know, you're forced to justify things. Yeah. And whether it be a casting choice, whether it be, uh, you know, a, uh, this is a, a, an example. This one always comes to mind because uh, when we were producing the show originally, you know, we wanted it to be beautiful and we wanted it, to, uh, and, it and it was. And luckily we had a terrific uh, DP mm-hmm. involved from the very beginning, Tom Del Ruth, who uh, shot something beautiful. Uh, then on the series we had John Barley he made something beautiful but at the same time uh, th- that's a part of it but uh, we we would go to do sound and uh, we'd go to do the final mix and we would you know, I, I think I was there through I don't know how many years of final mixes uh, uh, mostly I don't, maybe not at every single one but uh, trying to make it perfect and I think they looked at us and just shook their heads because really the sound at that time, and, and they had a case to, uh, to be made, 
which is that the sounds were coming out of small speakers. And so why make it great if the uh, end product was being consumed by people with tiny little television sets and little speakers? Uh, Here we are now with the X-Files on Netflix and people's 5.1 surround sound systems. Uh, That effort paid off. Uh, I think that sound is worthy of the pictures that we were making. So uh, it's it's small battles like that that you fight and win, mm-hmm. and uh, in the end, they, we, you, it seems like uh, uh, you know it it was worth the the trouble. Oh sure, and we can look back on that one and say yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Right. But even in the moment, how how could you justify it other than to say like I know what this is supposed to be, and I guess maybe that's it. I, I think yeah. Well, you do that, but I mean, if you. You know, you, you know, people say you put your name on something, but if you actually care uh, <laughs> yeah. to make something as good as it can be, yeah. uh, then you do. Then you take that extra time and you make that extra effort, and it costs extra money because oftentimes you keep that the you know the sound mixers more time. Uh, you don't just throw it in there and, and say that's good enough. Right. So uh, it is. You know, it's this is where you run up against trouble, and this is why they would send these executives in to pull the plug on us uh, and yeah we would be we would end up in a uh, you know a battle on the sound stage with these folks but this is just really one example yeah um, it's interesting that you mentioned the sort of cinematic look of the show too was that baked in from the beginning was that always part of the vision and again how did you how did you convey that and I'm going to want to like kind of go right. back a little bit even further but I'm curious about that look of the show it is. It was from the beginning. You know, it's. It's kind of. Uh, it's two things. It's wanting to do something good, but it's also a sort of genre demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't shoot this uh, in uh, two shots and masters. Uh, uh, information has to be revealed in a frightening or intense or thrilling way, mm-hmm. and to do that, you have to shoot it, uh, which means the directors have to make it in uh, such a way as to scare you, surprise you, shock you, horrify you, uh, and those were cinematic demands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the show took on a cinematic quality through the demand of the genre, but it also, because the producers in this case were very demanding of the uh, uh, the folks that were going out and making the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that adds time and money to the, to the budget as well. So these are all time and money uh, deals. And uh, did we get everything we wanted? No. Uh, did we make compromises? Absolutely. Uh, was there an episode shot very early on where someone didn't understand these uh, um, this way of shooting? Yes. I mean, we, did we go back and fix it? Yes. We were allowed the ability to go back and fix it. But there was someone who just didn't understand how to scare people. Mm-hmm. And everything was, the camera was uh, a, uh, an objective camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it wasn't scary. So we had to go back and fix that episode. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So you guys actually, on that episode, threw away what was shot and reshot? I think we added to, and uh, we, were, we had the ability. And this is, once again, this is because we had someone like Bob Goodwin mm-hmm. Uh, working up in Vancouver, who figured out how to get the work done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and uh, it, it took it, it took its toll. Uh, you know, there were uh, there were times when I know Bob Goodwin wasn't very happy with me uh, because of the demands and because the scripts would be late and because the rewrites would come in at the last moment, mm-hmm. uh, making everyone's job harder. 
the more prepared you are in, in my work, uh, the better the, the end product will be. Mm-hmm. The end product suffers if you are not prepared or you have people scrambling through the process. Okay. So, so uh, there was a lot of scrambling. And you were, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the showrunner on the original X-Files mm-hmm. from the beginning. And yes. Um, and you had kind of, if I'm, again, if I'm recalling correctly, you had done some pilots, is that right? Mm-hmm. And kind of kicked around doing yeah, that. Yeah, and I, I, I worked on a series, and I had a short-lived okay. series, so I had actually done some stuff. Okay. But I hadn't done anything in the genre that I love, which is this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it was really, you know, I, people were, they put a lot of faith in me. And, uh, you know, knock wood, it paid off. Yeah, I, I mean, that must have been an unbelievable crash course that first season. Yes. In not just figuring out how to run a show, but how to run this show yeah. and work with these writers. And then, I mean, it sounds yes. like you had a great production team. We, we did. We actually, uh, if it weren't for um, the teams of writers that came to work on the show who were smart and got it immediately and actually uh, like so many people who came to work on the show early on made it better, uh, better than it might have been uh, if, uh, if it were just uh, uh, left to uh, mm-hmm. find its own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people helped it find its way and made it, you know, and they, they threw, uh, almost, they willed it to be. Uh, and uh, that was really, that's the, that's the story of the X-Files mm-hmm. is... Uh, you talk about a collaborative effort, uh, truly a team effort, uh, and uh, there are people who have uh, been celebrated, and there are a lot of uh, unsung people as well. Sure, and it is, I think, at least for me at the time, one of the few shows where I remember hearing the writers' names. Yes. You know, that there were, everybody sort of had a mark on the show, and I want yes. to talk about that a little bit, but I want to, before we get too far, I want to hear about... Uh, pitching this show because again it was there was nothing like it at the time right it was an ambitious show even in concept yeah um what what did that pitch look like uh and how are you at pitching by the way because it's a hard thing well <laughs> I, I grew up a baseball player so I guess I'm a I was a and I, I was a pitcher so I guess I'm a pitcher by nature uh <laughs> but uh, the first my first outing uh uh, ended up uh, in a, I would call it a, a no decision for me, uh, meaning that uh, Fox, uh, and it was uh, Bob Greenblatt, who now runs NBC, who I was pitching to, and a woman named Daniel Clayman, who's now Daniel Gelber, who works for Dick Wolf, uh, they were in the room, and uh, as you say, there was nothing else like it So uh, on television, so uh, it wasn't an easy pitch, and they didn't buy it at first. Uh, I went in with uh, Peter Roth, who was running 20th Television at the time, who loved the idea and who, uh, uh, because he had uh, the power to do so and the enthusiasm, got a second meeting. Uh, I went back uh, armed with some, uh, uh, I would call them visual aids. Uh, I went back with uh, something called the Roper Survey that showed, uh, I forget what the number was, but uh, three in ten people in America believe they'd actually had to some uh, 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 um, 
either uh, sighting of a UFO or believed in UFO. I forget what the right. what the number was, yeah. but uh, it was a real survey conducted by a guy named Dr. John Mack, who became very famous in this field. He was a Harvard uh, psych researcher, mm-hmm. who I actually got to meet later on, uh, who conducted what I call a scientific survey. So it was perfect for us. It was taking a subject which was considered to be a little uh, outré and uh, applying scientific principles to it. That's really interesting. Um, so before that first pitch, uh, when you, I assume you took it to Peter Roth first. Yes. To say, here's the show I I, I, I worked for 20th, I, I was okay. hired to create TV shows. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, uh, there were two things that I did. I did one thing for ABC, which uh, um, did not go forward. And then I, this was the second thing I did. Okay. So this is all. And, and uh, this one took this one did take off uh, in a big way. Um, so what did that that sort of rough? Here's the idea I'm thinking of. Look like, what was the kernel for you? Uh, you know, there it was a. I remember it was a lunch meeting with Peter, and we both expressed our interest in uh, the Night Stalker. Uh, I, I love the Night Stalker. I had actually pitched uh, to Brandon Tartikoff the idea of doing a Night Stalker like show, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, his his. I was not on that ball, and uh, uh, he um, either ignored me or didn't like the idea. Uh, but uh, Peter uh, liked the idea a lot, uh, which meant that I got to go and uh, really uh, take this genre and try to come up with a uh, a way to tell the kinds of stories that I was interested in telling. Mm-hmm. And what what are the kinds of stories you're interested? Well, you know, uh, I was a child of Watergate, so I'm really interested. I loved all the President's Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was at the same time when Silence of the Lambs came out. I loved the movie. Uh, if you see that Scully has red hair, that is not a mistake. She <laughs> that is inspired by Clarice Starling. Uh, so the FBI, I would say, was inspired by Silence of the Lambs. Uh, the genre was inspired by Kolchak, the Night Stalker. The kind of storytelling was really, I'd say, probably inspired by uh, all the president's men. The, this idea that the government is keeping uh, things from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the X-Files uh, uh, was a, l- a lucky choice of a name, X standing for the unknown, that uh, stuck. Um, the idea that you could uh, not just tell stories about aliens and alien abduction and UFOs, but that you could uh, uh, tell stories about um, other scary things was built into the concept from the beginning. Yeah, I actually sure created a, I still have it, a, uh, a marketing kit that I actually made with my own money that was a folder that had photos and uh, basically a sort of... Uh, a, um, what the concept of the show was and how the episodes would unfold, uh, the story would unfold through the first season. Uh, What what did that look like? Is that how we saw it? Yeah, I I had created this logo. Uh, I actually, it's funny, you see in the main titles, uh, there's uh, an X with a sort of smoky X. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was actually created kind of like as an afterthought one day in the uh, editing bay uh, that would uh, go on the uh, pilot episode of the show um, and that sort of found its way into the main title and it, it never disappeared and that X inspired the, uh, the, the original logo 
uh, and uh, mm-hmm. the cover of this marketing kit that I made. That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, so it really was, I mean, that kind of thing is very common now, to yes. do this kind of lookbook. Uh, it is, a lookbook and sizzle reels, and these things are all... It's exhausting. Well, it's, <laughs> it, it really is uh, to, uh, I think it's... It's to show people you know what you're doing. I know Bibles are now uh, sort of a common thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, if any creator of a show tells you he knows or she knows exactly how it's going to go through the first season, uh, I, you know, uh, I think that uh, they're not doing their job uh, because so much of it is discovery and so much of it is figuring it out as you go uh, because certain things occur to you only through the doing and certain things occur to you about characters only through the... Uh, the narrative and uh, so that there is uh, I think uh, you're trying to uh, uh, allay people's fears uh, calm their anxieties about spending (laughs) pardon me spending a lot of money on something and uh, uh, this these tools like sizzle reels and such are a way of doing that of giving people an idea of what they're going to get uh, it's really telling them that you're not going to spend your money unwisely. You're going to spend your money on something we know exactly what it's going to be. <laughs> right. uh, but so much of it is discovery if you're uh, if you're really digging deep. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and something happens, like I said, this is a collaborative medium. Something happens when you bring in these collaborators. Yes. Right? And the show got better by bringing in the collaborators, and they didn't work on the pilot episode. Right. So that marketing kit... Uh, while it was uh, valuable and uh, certainly as a sales tool, uh, we did so much more, uh, and they did so much more, the people that came in. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Glenn Morgan and James Wong and uh, Alex uh, Gonza and Howard Gordon uh, early on. That was kind of the, the those, that was the, um, th- those were the, uh, that was starting lineup. Yeah. And while other people came to work on the show and added to the show, uh, that was the core group. Yeah, and then those are heavy hitters from the beginning. Yes, it, it was. That was a, a stroke of good luck. Peter Roth had worked with uh, Glenn and Jim at uh, Cannell. Mm-hmm. Thought they were great for the show, uh, and they were. Uh, I had actually heard uh, the names of Gordon and Ganza from uh, a friend. Uh, um, John Strauss, uh, who uh, knew them uh, uh, somehow, uh, thought they were terrific writers. Uh, in remembering uh, th- those names and, and reading their work, I saw that, in fact, they were. They had worked on Beauty and the Beast and some other things. Um, so that was uh, a stroke of good luck. It was just being mindful of uh, what people were telling me along the way. Uh, Cataloging some of those uh, those na- those good names. Yeah, well, you do have to be open to this influence. Yes, right? yes. Um, when I talked to Howard maybe a year or two ago, and, and Vince said the same thing a couple years ago, uh, they said they learned everything about show running from you and the X Files. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's flattering, uh, but uh, no, that's just not true. I, I think that their success, and I say this in all honesty, uh, their success. Uh, says more about them than it says about me. Uh, they, they were good. They came to me good. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, while we all learned something through the doing, uh, uh, I um, I got as much out of it as they did. Well, and, and I'm, you know, you can be humble as you want to be, but uh, there is something to be said about the kinds of people who came out of that room over the uh, run of the show and right. the kinds of work they did before, but really afterwards, yeah. 
um, that they did take something from working on that show. How how was your room run? Was there a room? Not per se. Um, it, it was while people would come up with their ideas, and they we and early on we sat and we actually worked those ideas out as a group. So there was a room, uh, but as time went on. Uh, you'd come up with your idea and you'd work out then you'd sort of pitch out a mostly fleshed out idea to the group uh, mm-hmm. and then maybe that group would pick it apart and it's mm-hmm. much the way we are working now coming back to the series after all this time uh, we pitch an idea everyone says yes uh, you go and you work on your board which means uh, you go to your uh, very low tech uh, bulletin board one of which I see sitting behind you right now with all those yeah. push pins on it you put your three, five, three by five cards up uh, in row, it used to be a four-act structure. Now it's a five-act structure, uh, and that's the way you did it. And uh, it, the uh, the board uh, was made so beautifully uh, early on by Glenn Morgan, who's got beautiful uh, penmanship, and uh, his cards were uh, uh, the sort of standard by which all of the cards were judged. That's hilarious. Um, so was it? Was it a democratic system, or was it? Did everybody have a voice in that room when someone was pitching, and was everyone invited to kind of push on the idea? Yeah, it was collaborative in that in that way and uh, collegial. That's great. Um, how did how did you balance the writer's voice with? I mean, ultimately, you are the voice of the show as the showrunner and creator. Uh, how much rewriting did you do? How much hand-holding did you do? How did you maintain the voice of the show while still giving these writers the freedom to tell the stories they wanted to tell? Right. Um, there was some rewriting uh, that needed to be done. Um, you, you, I didn't... Uh, uh, I, I rewrote when necessary. I rewrote it. I rewrote when necessary. Uh, and um, that's through the course of and I stayed with the show through from beginning to the end mm-hmm. um, but uh, everyone got a chance to do their first draft and um, uh, not everything went through my uh, computer uh, so uh, that's the way it worked and is that still the way it works? Uh, right now everyone's writing their own material and uh, from beginning to end and uh, there is we're not re- rewriting each other's material sure. yeah. did you convene everyone at the beginning of the process I mean we, it, yes we all convened uh, Jim and Glenn are now writing uh, separately uh, Darren Morgan is, uh, has come in uh, every uh, writer in this case uh, meaning that there are four of us mm-hmm. uh, uh, are we are all writing and directing our own episodes. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, were you always interested in directing as well? I was. Because uh, it feels like, and again, just in the <laughs> cursory research that I did, uh, you were sort of always on a writing track, uh, from journalism to right. uh, TV and film. Um, was, where did directing come from? How, how do you see directing as part of storytelling? Well, I mean, we work in a visual medium, so uh, I, and if you read the scripts from the beginning, they're very visual. They tell you what you see when, and uh, so uh, um, it's. I guess it's my visual sense that makes me want to realize my stories in a visual way, mm-hmm. uh, which is what directing is. Sure. And so, directing was a natural uh, progression for me. Uh, 
I directed my first episode of anything uh, on the second season of The X-Files, and I, uh, I always say that I was lucky enough to give myself the job um, episode five, and I went on to direct uh, several episode fives through subsequent seasons. Um, but uh, it was a trial by fire, and actually I, I, say people, I say to people, and they don't believe me, uh, they think it's a joke, but I, when I first said action and cut and no one laughed, uh, I, I thought that uh, I had actually uh, uh, crossed a, uh, a great, um, uh, it was a great moment in my career. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it really is, I mean, and again, we've heard this from other writer directors before, it's, it's an extension of the, tool, the storytelling tool, toolkit. Yes, uh, yes. That's interesting. Um, I do want to go back. Let's talk a little bit about uh, getting your start in this business and making that jump from journalism. Uh, you were a writer and editor of this surfing magazine. Right, huh? Um, for how long? I got there in uh, 1979, and I stayed at the uh, magazine, uh, which means I was an in-house editor, uh, I think for five or six years. I think I ended up living there in 1984. Uh, but I stayed on the masthead for, um, I think I was on the masthead for a total of about a dozen years. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was a surf journalist mm-hmm. uh, during that period. Uh, I have a degree in journalism, so I studied journalism. I, I was lucky enough to do an internship uh, at Surfing Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I was a surfer, so to me it was like a dream come true. Uh, going to work there, uh, this, I was lucky enough that the magazine was going from a bi-monthly magazine to a monthly right about the time I was graduating, so they needed uh, someone. Uh, I had made myself, uh, I was not only cheap, but I had made myself someone indispensable. Uh, so uh, I got... Which is great advice. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's the way it used to be done. I mean, it was an apprenticeship, and... Uh, uh, you don't uh, get good at something unless you do it over and over and over again. And I have to say that uh, there, uh, I learned how to uh, approach that IBM Selectric uh, daily uh, and to sit down. And uh, w- much of what what is writing is uh, putting your butt in a chair and your fingers on a keyboard and staying there. And uh, I learned how to do that. Let's talk about that. Uh, and, you know, this gets into nerdy, deep process questions. Yeah. But what does your day writing look like when you are when you're working on a show and when you're not working on a show? Yeah. I always say when you work on a show that you, you write one-handed uh, if you're a writer-producer because you're picking up the phone to answer questions and solve problems. And, uh, but you've got to keep writing. Uh, rain or shine, hell or high water... You've got to get those scripts out there because, it, as I said, you know you are the, the show must go on and does go on uh, with or without you, and uh, but it can't go on with or without scripts. Uh, so uh, it's very intense and intensive, and uh, you need to um, always. Uh, what you need is a uh, the ability to kind of write anywhere and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very funny picture of me. Uh, it was the year that the it was the fourth season of the X Files, the first season of Millennium, um, running two shows, and uh, we were getting ready to do the first movie. It was it was it was really a lot of work. And, uh, and it's, once again, I didn't know what we couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a picture of me sitting in this uh, park 
which I, uh, it's funny, I was at that same park uh, for the filming of episode two uh, just uh, three days ago, uh, coincidentally. But I, I, and I, and I had said to somebody, I've got a picture of myself sitting in this park or someone took a picture of me, my assistant at the time. Uh, I'm sitting with my laptop in my lap and uh, I am surrounded by a bunch of homeless people. But my head is down and I'm completely focused on what I'm doing. Uh, and uh, it's actually one of my favorite pictures uh, of uh, that time uh, because it perfectly captured what my life was like. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a neat trick. I mean, that is hard to do, to learn to focus like that quickly and anywhere. Yeah. How, did you have to train yourself to do that, or have you always been someone who runs to the keyboard? It's funny. Uh, I, you know what? Here's what it is, really. Um, it's, it's funny. I, I feel, at, at the same time I love to talk about this, I feel like, who cares? Uh, but this is the only podcast. But I, okay, maybe maybe you guys care. Um, I, I have to say, one of the best things that, uh, that my parents gave me, instilled in me, was a work ethic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm uh, I, I'm a very responsible person. To, if if you hire me, uh, I, I want to do a good job for you. So uh, that that goes a long way in uh, in the uh, television series business. Uh, if you are responsible to the process, uh, it rewards you, and uh, that's really how I look at it. That's a, that's a smart and practical way to look at it. I mean, this is this is a job. Yes. You are serving somebody. Yeah, you're someone's not. paying you to do good work, and yeah. uh, if you don't do good work, you're not earning your keep. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, I, hear, I still hear my parents. <laughs> it's like... Uh, my father was a uh, you know a heavy construction worker. He tore up the streets. You know, he's the person who was digging the ditches in the street. He called himself a ditch digger. And my mom was a housewife, but she was the daughter of dairy farmers. And uh, you can imagine dairy farmers have a very proscribed <laughs> life and schedule. They must do the work when the work needs to be done. Uh, so I remember the ringing in my ears is that kind of what they would both say to my brother and me. They would say, uh, uh, "You don't know what a hard day's work is," <laughs> and it's like uh, I, so I think maybe I still believe it. Uh, I, I don't really know what a hard day. I don't know what it's like to have to go out and milk dairy cows. Sure. Or, uh, I used. To, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember actually, strangely enough, uh, uh, you know, in the throes of production, you, you start to feel sorry for yourself, which is a big, <laughs> big trap. But I would be. Uh, um, I would I would work down in Los Angeles, and my wife and I live uh, actually live out of Los Angeles. And I would uh, finish for the week, and I would drive to uh, home on the weekend. And I would drive through some. Uh, I'd be feeling sorry for myself, as I said. And I would drive through these fields where there were people stooped over picking, you know, uh, mm-hmm. strawberries. And I'd think, you know, I am so lucky uh, not to be doing that. Uh, and uh, it, it's true. I mean, it, that's another kind of uh, hard work. Uh, but I have to say, uh, it, you know, you having to come up with uh, ideas and stories and scripts uh, with a, you know, the proverbial gun to your head uh, is never an easy thing. Absolutely not. No. Make, make no mistake, listener, this yes. is work. Right. Um, do you enjoy the writing process? Uh, I do. Actually, I, I enjoy the, uh, you know, it's, 
it's a puzzle of sorts, and mm-hmm. I enjoy sort of solving a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I say that, uh, I've got a, I'm sitting with my computer in front of me. You saw me close my computer as you came in. I'm working on something that is just uh, mystifying me right now. So do I enjoy that part of it? I wish it went faster sometimes, but uh, it's a puzzle to be solved. It, that's interesting, too, because you're sitting here solving this puzzle, whether it's a scene or an episode or whatever, where in a lot of shows that work is done by the room. Yes. Um, it's never really, though. Is, yeah, tell me about that. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you can come up with a great story, mm-hmm. and you can even come up with every single beat in the plot uh, but that's that's the uh, that's the leaping off place uh, what you discover through the course of that story tell, uh, telling that story when you really sit down it's not paint by number it's not the room can only do so much and maybe it works different in comedy where you come up with jokes and you you, uh, you hear a good joke and you write it down uh, it, it's not necessarily the way it works uh, in, the, in the work that at least that I do hmm. that's interesting we're you know again having talked to Vince and seen the Breaking Bad board which is broken the beats are broken within an inch of their lives yes um, is that what you guys did when the writers came in to yes. present their it, it's, it's what we did and it's okay. what we did from the very beginning and luckily, I had really good people come in and work to work on the show who yeah. got that and who were good at that process. Mm-hmm. Frank Spotnitz was excellent at that process. What he, makes someone good at that process? Uh, I mean, I know from one side of it, you have to it, not it, have an ego. It's a storytelling gene, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I always say everyone goes to film school, and because if you if you love to go to see movies or you love good television, it's a it's film school of uh, of a sort. And these are people who have not just uh, good taste uh, and uh, are not not just good writers, but they have uh, um, they've seen so much, mm-hmm. and they've got such a catalog in which to uh, uh, draw upon. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's interesting to think of that as coming out of that room with that solid outline as a jumping off point. Yes. Um, and there's still discovery beyond that. That's part of your... When I was talking about preparation, yeah. uh, if you don't have that really good story uh, worked out, uh, you're going to be making up for it uh, every step of the way mm-hmm. uh, in, in, through the editing process. And in that sound mixing, you're going to be making up for the fact that you weren't uh, as prepared as possible going in. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, were there... During the run of the Exile, especially in the early years, uh, did you always have? Did you always know what this show was? I mean, the, the the sort of fungible aspect of it was built in, as you say. But was there a discovery process in the show itself to say this is what we can do, this is what we can't do? Yeah, I mean, and, and how did you figure out how to say that? You know, the show is a, you know, it's an infant in the beginning, and it's got to be raised, and it's got to, you know, you got to teach it to walk. And uh, luckily, very early on, all these good people came to work on it, and they they pushed it along, and mm-hmm. they uh, they held its hand, and then they, uh, you know, they stuck a bottle in its mouth, and uh, it grew, and it got better and better and better, and it became, you know, it became the monster we all wanted it to be uh, in, in the end. Um, 
but uh, no, with you know, without that nurturing in the beginning, and without great episodes like Beyond the Sea in the beginning, and uh, I think of Ice in the beginning. These are fantastic episodes that showed what the show could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, without those things, and you're you're doing another thing when you're creating episodes like that. You're not just rewarding the audience. You're rewarding yourself in a way because when you see what the show and the actors and the genre is capable of, you are giving the crew something special. When the crew can't wait to see the next script, you know you're doing something right. That's, that's a, for me, a very good indicator of the quality of your work is that if, the, if you've got the crew anxious to see what they're going to be working on next, uh, it's a good sign. Yeah, that that's, must be an amazing feeling as well. Yeah. Um, let, let's get a little specific on that, on, say, Ice, for example. What do you all as writers learn from that episode that the show is capable of? What do you see in that episode that helps you form the target for the show? I think it was, you know, it was a bottle show, first of all, yeah. so you saw what you could do within a, in a confined uh, uh, format, context, so that was exciting. You saw uh, how you could tell these thrilling episodes in the, for the time and the money that we had. And you saw what the actors were capable of. And you saw the intensity of the, the storytelling. It drove it to a new level for me. And uh, that was helped uh, in no small part by David Nutter, who came in to direct that episode. Was that his first episode? That, that, was, that was his first episode, and uh, he just directed it. You know, he, he, it was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and you could tell when you saw him doing it, it was going to be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we had a great cast. Uh, we, um, it was a great idea, uh, and uh, it just uh, was, uh, it succeeded in ways that go beyond its uh, ratings value. Sure. Wait, was it not good in the ratings? No, it was. Good, it was. It was good, but okay. uh, it succeeded on uh, levels that people wouldn't uh, even know. Oh, absolutely. Um, were there other were there episodes throughout the run that you could look at as personal triumphs, where you were getting a story that meant something to you on the page in a way that worked and that still that yeah. Everything came together. I tell this story, and it's funny. I, I never, I have not heard from uh, this person, and uh, it makes me wonder if this it was uh, this was a letter sent to me uh, via the post office. Uh, I got a letter from someone whose last name was Barub or Barubi, B-E-R-U-B-E, saying that uh, they liked the stories just fine, but the ones that they liked most were the ones that involved. Uh, Mulder and Scully and their relationship mm-hmm. and, the, and, and stories that they would invest in personally which were the mythology episodes so I think that uh, taking that advice to heart, which is what I did uh, in somewhere uh, maybe mid, mid first season mid to late first season you get an episode like the Erlenmeyer Flask uh, which uh, did all those things mm-hmm. It told the story that Mulder and Scully were invested in, and it dealt with Mulder's uh, belief that the government was hiding things from us. Uh, it took Scully's uh, science and made great use of it. 
it uh, drove their relationship, mm-hmm. it drove the series mythology, it killed off a main character, which was came as a big surprise. It actually, I, I think it shocked the, the hardcore audience. I know that it did, mm-hmm. and they told us it did, is that they, we closed the X-Files at the end of the first season. And right. uh, it seemed as if the X-Files might not be coming back, uh, which, you know, is a big dramatic a risk to take. Uh, you want people to think that they, you know, it is coming back for a, uh, a second season, and this is when without social media, so yeah. you've got to get this uh, information out in some other fashion. Luckily, the internet was just taking off at the same time. Yeah, well, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, you mentioned the kind of marketing meetings you have to go now, go to now, and the hats you have to wear as a showrunner. Right. Um, but the internet was, you know, starting up around this time. We're starting to gain traction around this time. And I know, uh, I don't know, I'm sure you were aware of Kumail, the comedian, yes. Kumail Nanjiani, watching the show right. um, and reading those old internet posts. And he mentions that you and some of the writers would go on and read those boards. Yes, definitely. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, the sort of fan engagement that happens every minute now. Yes, right. Um, would you talk to them or would you just kind of see what people were interested yeah, in? Yeah, there was correspondence and... Uh, you know, people asked if we get ideas from them, and uh, the answer was no. Sure. But we were mindful of their uh, responses and uh, their reactions to things and what was working and what wasn't working. Uh, as uh, a case in point is this letter that I'm mm-hmm. talking about that I got that came, you know, snail mail. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, you, if you don't, uh, be, if you are not mindful of these things, I think that you are probably not doing your job mm-hmm. um, uh, as, it, as it might be done. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and we've talked to a number of creators who have kind of gone different ways on this because it's an interesting tightrope walk, right? This kind of fan engagement. Yes. Um, ultimately, I would imagine, and you know, we said this before, you you do have to tell the story that you have to tell. Yep. Um, I guess there's freedom in having 24 episodes yes. that you can lean harder into a certain type of story. Or, but you know, uh, you know, I have to say in the beginning, we 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 gave it our every episode was uh, um, uh, a complete effort. Oh, uh, nothing was half baked. Nothing was oh this will be uh, an okay episode till we get to the next episode. Yeah, uh, I, we were swinging for the fence every time. I can I mean speaking for myself. Mm-hmm. And this may be an odd question and maybe better answered by your staff, but was it an easy show to care about? Was it an easy show to be passionate about? Yes. Uh, you had David and Jillian, uh, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons, is that you had two people who were giving it their all, yeah. uh, who, uh, you know, it's... Uh, they... People don't know how hard it is the the work for a two lead sh- uh, two actor lead show. Um, it was it was uh, exhausting, and uh, it was for them trial by fire as well. So for all of us, and so I think because everyone was uh, um, giving it their all, uh, it worked. You know, it, it's I, I say the reason that I do what I do is really for uh, that. Um, uh, s- to achieve that esprit de corps when you get that spirit uh, where everything and everyone is working together that is, uh, and it doesn't happen all the time but if you have a sense that you're working 
uh, in a cooperative and uh, collaborative environment where everyone uh, is rooting for everyone else, which is what the it felt like. Mm-hmm. Um, you you also have something special to work on. Absolutely. I mean, it had to have that, especially in the first season, it had to have that, uh, let's put up a sheet in the barn kind yes, of feeling. Yes, it was, yes. I, you know, Andy Hardy, right? Yeah, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and exciting to see that it was working. Yeah. You know, maybe it wasn't every episode, right. say, but when it worked, it really worked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it gave you guys something to work harder towards, like yeah. a clearer target. How did the show start to change? Uh, I know, like, three years was sort of yeah. how long it took to really skyrocket, right? Right. right. Did, did the way the show was made change in that time? We had a little bit more money, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. We started getting some more second unit days, which is good, which means that we had some more time to put more stuff on film, mm-hmm. which gave us uh, um, more latitude. Uh, we started getting better at it. Mm-hmm. We started uh, sure. understanding what, what the demands were, right? Uh, uh, we changed from Friday nights to Sunday nights, so mm-hmm. we had a uh, we went from a cult show to a bigger cult show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always still think of it as a uh, just a big cult show, which <laughs> sure. is what a I think it is. Cult show that had an enormous audience, right? Right. Um, those those things changed. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where that's when the popularity really took off. But I have to say, season three was actually sort of like. Uh, we had uh, reached a stride of sorts. Uh, luckily, we had people like Darren Morgan there too, who came in and did three uh, incredible episodes, yeah. uh, which I still think of as some of the best X Files ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were uh, still ambitious. I'd stay s- still green enough that we were hungry. But I have to say that didn't change through the course of the show. Uh, while we got seasoned, uh, I'd say we were we were hungry through to the end. There was never a time where I could say we flagged or we uh, yeah. we uh, took our eye off the uh, the proverbial ball. I, I absolutely agree as a viewer. You yeah. know, like in, you can tell when it's being phoned in. You can tell when the passion is gone. Yeah. And there was a show that was always ambitious from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something um, just about Darren. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned those episodes. What, what makes those some of the best to you? Uh, what, what was it about his voice that lent itself to this show? It's an X-Files voice, but uh, it is such an original idiosyncratic voice. Uh, it really showcased the actors Mm-hmm. showed what they could do. It showed the range of the show. It showed how far the show could expand out of its genre shape and yet come back right into shape uh, to do a mythology episode mm-hmm. on the heels of one of Darren's episodes. It really was uh, It was a wonderful uh, uh, um, avenue in which to... Uh, Take a detour uh, to come back to the uh, to the you know uh, I guess the mainstream if you would. Mm-hmm. Was there ever? I'm always curious about juggling the ongoing story with these sort of episodic stories. Um, and I, again, I, it, this was one of those few shows that did this back in in the early days of doing this. Yeah. Uh, Hill Street Blues was another, but. 
what was planned going in? What did the first few weeks of a season look like when it was just the writers? You know, how much did you know going into a season, and how many? What were the te- were there tent poles? Did you know how many episodes yes. you had to hit? We uh, something happened uh, with the Erlenmeyer flask, uh, and then coming back um, uh, with Little Green Men at the beginning of season two, you got a. Uh, a hint of what was to come, mm-hmm. uh, and then you got the first uh, real attempt at this in uh, Dwayne Barry and Ascension, uh, a two-parter. As you started getting the two-part mythology episodes that we had, we would do uh, roughly six to eight of those a season, and they became uh, the uh, tent poles, uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, uh, term. That everything would kind of be built around, and it allowed people like Darren and Vince mm-hmm. and um, uh, the other writers who came in to work around those things that were going to be. Uh, you knew where they were going to land, so you knew how to aim for them, and you knew what uh, where the space was in between them, and you kind of got a sense of the music, if you will, of the rise and fall and the uh, the call and answer. And the um, the rhythms uh, started to develop by season three mm-hmm. uh, of what the show would ultimately become through nine mm-hmm. seasons. That's interesting. And it, did it pretty much look like that from there on out? It did. Um, and again, did you did the mythology stories come out of writers' room conversations? Did you know coming into a season? Here's roughly where we want to go. No, not exactly. Uh, if you look at the pilot and the first episode uh, in Deep Throat, and then you look at the Erlenmeyer flask, you see the mythology kind of loaded into those three episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mythology, while it has many other elements uh, that were added in uh, by people like uh, Gordon and, and Ganza and uh, Morgan and Wong, uh, the, uh, the Mulder story is really built into those uh, three episodes uh, and I'd say everything um, is kind of built around those mm-hmm. um, yeah and it was funny I mean I know I remember as a viewer when you saw it written by Chris Carter you knew it was going to be a, a mythology episode yeah mostly it's, it's funny it, it, it's true and while I did other kinds of episodes that became uh, I, 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 in a weird way I was uh, responsible for the relationship uh, because the relationship uh, is what uh, was put at stake and grew and uh, was challenged through mostly through the mythology episodes as the show went forward what uh, so in in this new series you're dealing obviously with fewer episodes by far how do you balance that mythology and uh, episodic structure is it a similar act yeah, I mean, we're doing these six episodes right now, and uh, we're bookending them with, as you say, Chris Carter mythology episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, that's built in. Um, and then everyone else is coming in to do uh, standalone uh, mm-hmm. stories. That said, every episode uh, is dealing with Mulder and Scully on some emotional arc that we've all agreed upon that they will travel uh, through the course of this uh, mini-series, if you will. And we'll, we'll start to wrap up here, but I'm curious to hear a little bit about the movies and what the movies gave you that the TV show didn't, and, and vice versa. 
right. what were the challenges of it? What were the joys of them? Uh, making something worthy of the big screen. Hmm. And uh, the first movie, I think, succeeded in that way. The second movie was really a standalone episode uh, made for the big screen. And uh, there were certain things... When I look at it now, we were asked to make a basically a television show ser- uh, uh, episode for the big screen. And uh, given so much money to do that, uh, and uh, it, I think the big screen demands more of the show than we were able to give it uh, in the, uh, given the uh, restrictions and constraints. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the second movie can, uh, succeeded uh, in a lesser way. Uh, I, when we uh, turned in our uh, first cut, if you will, to the, uh, I remember showing it to uh, Fox. Uh, you know, they called it uh, slasher porn or something, t- torture <laughs> yes. porn or something. Uh, you know, it was an R-rated movie, mm-hmm. and uh, it was scarier that way. And uh, I wish it could have been an R-rated uh, movie because it would have been a much scarier episode, and it would have given people more than they got on the television yeah. show. Uh, as it uh, turned out, we. Uh, pulled it back to make give it a PG-13 mm. uh, rating and uh, I think that um, uh, it, I was trying to do more not really nice not really realizing I'd have to do less hmm. oh that's interesting yeah um, I mean there are obviously these sort of big screen demands right um, a sort of epic visual scope but is there a storytelling scope that's different? I mean, the R rating is, uh, yeah, is a great it, way to put it. It, it, it shouldn't be... The X-Files need not be an R-rated show. Sure. Uh, but to, sometimes to scare people, mm-hmm. uh, you need to do things that uh, might get you an R rating. Uh, it's funny. Uh, you, you, we, did, we pushed a limit, uh, and uh, we were pushed back as a result of it for doing this episode home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it really it pushed limit the limits of uh, television uh, standards and practices, and we were told never to do that again. That has now become a uh, uh, one of the most beloved uh, X Files episodes, one of the scariest episodes ever. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I would have gotten the PG thirteen rating doing something like that. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. not. Uh, that's kind of what we were shooting for. But I felt like the uh, that PG thirteen is a it's a very strict rating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Were there... Speaking of, listen, I'm just going to ask this. Yeah. We can cut it out. Yeah. But I saw that one of the episodes in the new series is Home Again. Yes. Is this a sequel? It is not. Okay. Yeah. Shut up, Internet. <laughs> um, were there ideas... I mean, you guys had a good long run, and as I said, always ambitious. Were there ideas that got away? Were there things you you tried and tried to find a place for or a story you tried that never quite got right so it never became an episode? I want to say yes, but I'm, I'm hard-pressed to really come up with a, a, a good example. I can think of one thing that I, I had an idea and uh, we started to pursue it. I remember Darren Morgan came up with a really interesting twist on it, which I thought was great. And somehow that... It never happened, and uh, I always thought that it would have been a great episode. And maybe, uh, um, you know, if we are successful at this uh, this series of six, 
maybe one day we can revisit that. Oh, sure. I mean, this is this is the world we're in now, right? Yes. These things never die. Yeah, right. Which, as you're proving. Um, we will wrap up, as we always do, by asking, uh, do you have time to watch television? Are you watching anything yeah. on television? I, I'm asked this question. I always say, well, yeah, I watch all kinds of television. <laughs> and then people ask, what are you watching? And then I scratch my head trying to do with thinking. Yeah, is there anything you're getting excited or inspired by or talking to your spouse or friends about? Yeah, well, you know, of course, we watched Mad Men together, my spouse. <laughs> and I watched Mad Men together. We loved it. It's, that, that show was uh, a masterpiece. We watched all of Breaking Bad. We're watching Better Call Saul. Uh, she started watching the new True Detective without me. I loved the first True <laughs> Detective. Um, let's see what else. I'm watching some European stuff I'm not going to mention because I like it too much and I want to see if I can... Oh, come on. Make some, that no, no, watch. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> oh. And then, uh, of course, I watched Jillian in the fall and I haven't seen David in Aquarius yet, but it just got its pick up for its next season. Oh, which is, yeah, great. just today. Um, what else can I tell you? Mm. That's a lot of TV. That's a lot more than a lot of TV <laughs> writers get to watch. Well, I mean, there's just there's there's so much television to watch now, and so little time to do yeah. it if, if you're uh, if you're hard at work. Absolutely. Let me let me ask you this sort of uh, maybe an odd question, but hearing about the way you work and you know the the butt in chair, fingers on keyboard. Uh, how long have you been married? I th- let me see. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly. It will be uh, twenty-seven years. And is your wife in the industry? She used to be. She's not anymore. <laughs> um, what? That's not. That's not exactly true. She actually. She's a novelist, and she wrote a book of short stories, which she and I adapted uh, and oh, really? uh, would love to make. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so she understands the writing process. Very, this very much. She, she, she taught me, so uh, yeah, she understands. <laughs> How so? Well, I mean, I, when I met her, she was a screenwriter, mm-hmm. and uh, I wasn't, and so uh-huh. uh, therefore. <laughs> she came before me. That's really funny. Well, then that answers my question. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking the time. People are very excited about this new series. I'm very excited about this new thank series. You. Um, is there anything you can tell us that we don't know about it? Anything you're particularly excited about? I'm excited about the time slot. <laughs> <laughs> the time slot. Well, it comes on after the um, uh, football, uh, the NFC uh, playoffs uh, oh. in late January, so that's a really exciting thing. Sure. They gave us a really nice time slot, yeah. so we know that there will be uh, an audience uh, poised to watch it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, now we've just got to make it good uh, because there's uh, we've been given the opportunity and there's lots of... Um, excitement about it so we now we have to make good on that promise i i have every confidence yeah, thanks. thanks so much Brett. thank you welcome now leaving nerdist.com